0: Let's pray one more time as we begin, shall we? Father, we come into your courts with thanksgiving and praise. We want to speak wonderful things about you because you are our God, as Psalm 78 says, who alone does wonders. And Lord, we have done the greatest marvel of all, which is our redemption, as you've brought us to Mount Zion, to Jesus, to the sprinkled blood, to the city of the living God. Father, you've done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You've given us access to your throne of grace, and you've positioned us in a right standing before you as the judge of all. We ask your help now, Lord, we pray that you would give us a glimpse of the beauty and the glory of this new covenant. Help us to understand truly the unspeakable blessings of Zion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I feel a little bit like I should prepare you because it was Lloyd-Jones who was famous for saying, I don't mean to keep you, because sometimes he'd be a little long-winded. And now we look back at Lloyd-Jones and we wish that he would have kept us longer because everything he said and wrote and preached was just great. And so I say that only to say we have a lot of work to do today in this text, and so I'm I'm praying for you that the Lord will give you strength and will give you perseverance and give you endurance as we go through this marvelous, marvelous section of Scripture. There are several realities that I want to touch on as we begin going through verse 22 down to the end, verse 24, that's where we find ourselves. And having looked at the unapproachable holiness of Sinai, now we come to the contrast in verse 22, which is, but we can entitle The Unspeakable Blessings of Zion. The Unspeakable Blessings of Zion. We saw Sinai and what it was and what it symbolized. And two things were really manifested to us there as we looked at Sinai. First, we understand that Sinai represents a revelation of God who desires to dwell with His people. That's what Sinai tells us. It also tells us that Although God did reveal Himself, He did at the same time conceal His glory, coming to us in a dark cloud and gloom and and coming to us in a mountain that could not be touched. So there is at the same time a revealing and a concealing of the glory of God. But now we arrive at the place that was always anticipated but was never fully comprehended No prophet ever said what the book of Hebrews now declares. No prophet of God ever declared so boldly, You have come to Mount Zion. No longer are we simply left to the shadows of the past, in Jesus and in the New Covenant, now we have been ushered into the reality of the eschaton itself. And that requires some explanation. What is what is all of this saying? How do we summarize what we're looking at as we go from Sinai to Zion and everything in between that's going on here in Hebrews? This is a sentence that I'm going to repeat for the next three weeks. That what we find in the blessings of Zion, is ultimately reflecting one great redemptive reality and it is this. That God desires, listen now, He desires a holy people in a holy realm, in a holy covenant bond of communion through Jesus Christ. You may want to rewind the tape. You may want to take notes. You may want me to read it again and I will. It's, This is what Sinai to Zion is revealing to us, that God desires a holy people in a holy realm, in a holy covenant bond of communion through Jesus Christ. I just gave you a summary of biblical theology from Genesis to Revelation. That sentence right there has taken me 20 years (laughs) to really grasp and to summarize what is the Bible about? Well, it's about God who desires a holy people in a holy realm in the context of a covenant bond of communion, because our God is a God of fellowship, which is really amazing to think about. So we have some work to do as we go through this section. I'm going to break it up into three sections that deal with not only uh, the scene in heaven, the gathering of heaven, that's what we're going to be looking at today, but then we will look at the other verses, verse 23 and 24, in the future here, in the near future, Lord willing. Today we are looking at the gathering of heaven because that is really the scene that we're being given here. So what I want to do is I want to read our section for today again, beginning of verse 22. This is what the Word of God says. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels to the general assembly and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now you see why what we're looking at here is what I've entitled the gathering of heaven. That's the first unspeakable blessing that is presented to us from Sion is the gathering of heaven. This also suggests to us that the term Mount Zion is all important. This word, Zion, or Mount Zion, ultimately is synonymous with the next two terms. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. These are all synonymous ideas. And what the Bible teaches us is that Zion is ultimately a type. It's ultimately prophetic. It's ultimately a typological symbol of God's ultimate and final destination for all of His saints and the imagery of Zion really began at the Garden of Eden. If you do the work, you can actually see that. That's why uh, in the Old Testament, Zion and Eden are often put in the same context. Because, as some have suggested, what Zion ultimately typified was something of a vertical tabernacle, we could say. A vertical temple of God. Let me just read to you Isaiah 51, verse 3. It says, The Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness He will make like Eden, and all her deserts like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the sound of melody. See, we could ask the question, Why Mount Zion? Why did God choose that as His typological landmark? Why not just the plains of Moab or why not the ocean or a river or a tree? Why a mountain? Meredith Klein says that Zion's typology is a vertical cosmic access of the kingdom of God. Wow. He says, he gets that from that? (laughs) Yes, because what's going on in Eden, which is a type of Zion, is that God has constructed a temple. And we are told in the book of Ezekiel that, that Eden was on a mountain. We typically don't think of it that way. But it's on a mountain because it was ultimately a symbol and a type of Zion itself. So it has a, tra- a redemptive trajectory that points us heavenward. Now, I think in order to understand more comprehensively what Zion is all about, Let's look at these synonymous terms and let's look at the gathering of heaven and what Zion is all about. Number one, I want to talk, well I want to talk about three things. Number one, the city that we're gathered to. Number two, the angels that surround us. And number three, the church that we belong to. Number one, the city that we are gathered to. See, the new covenant brings us in contact with what the Bible calls the city of the living God or the heavenly Jerusalem. Same thing. Should also mention the nature of this relationship at the outset. We're talking here about our positional righteousness before God. When the author of Scripture is telling us, you have come, understand that this is in the present tense. It's not the future tense. He's not saying one day you will arrive at Mount Zion. That would seem to make much more sense. Because after all, we could stand here today and say, well, it doesn't feel like we're at Mount Zion right now doesn't feel like I'm in the city of the living God. I don't feel as if and I don't see the new Jerusalem. But the author of Scripture put it in the present tense verb for a reason. He says, you have come. Not you will come. And so this is what theologians call realized eschatology, a really what is also known as the already not yet of Scripture. To put it in Pauline language, this is what we call positional righteousness or our positional standing before God. It's no different. Here, turn in your Bibles with me, and I want to show you other places where the same exact phenomenon is used but of different aspects of our salvation. For example... Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with, with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Now watch this now. And He raised us up with Him. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. And you might say the same thing in this text that you do of Zion. Well, it doesn't seem as if I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places. After all, I'm sitting at Heritage Grace. This is a perfect example of realized eschatology so that positionally, because of your union with Jesus Christ, it is in God's economy as if you are already sitting in heaven with Christ. Isn't that so glorious? The language intensifies. Look at Romans chapter 8. This is perhaps the strongest that the language gets. In Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 30, the author speaks of heaven and I guess our glorified state in the past tense as if it's a done deal. He says, these who he predestined, he also called. And these who he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. When you could say, I don't feel glorified. <laughs> and that's because, of course, what the what, what Paul is saying here is there's, there's an already not yet tension to our personal eschatology. Positionally, because of our union with Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 3 says, we are citizens of heaven. Colossians tells us, we have already been transferred into the kingdom. Of his beloved. And on and on and on it goes. Whether we're talking about the consummation of the ages, which is mentioned already in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26, and Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 10. Or if we're thinking about the arrival of the new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 17, he who is in Christ is what? A new creation. A new creation. The new covenant brings us into the sphere of future blessings. And we enjoy those future blessings here and now at the same time that we are longing and that we are hoping for them. This hope begins right now. We long for the heavenly city that we are already presently belonging to. It's really remarkable what he has done here. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now obviously the reference to the city of the living God and the reference to the new Jerusalem has already in a sense been referred to. Look back in your Bibles with me. Just, just just go back a couple chapter or one chapter chapter 11 go back to verse 9 and 10 and then we're going to look at 13 through 16 because this is all referring to that heavenly country that all of the people of God in the past the patriarchs and the prophets and all of and everyone the great cloud of witness this is the same thing that they were longing for it says in verse 9 by faith alien uh uh Abraham he lived as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations and whose architect and builder is God. They are longing for Mount Zion, for the New Jerusalem, for the city of the living God, whose architect, whose architect and whose builder is God. Look at verse 13. All of these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. You see, the people of God, even back in the patriarchal times, they had an eschatological worldview. They were looking ahead, looking forward. Boy, we need that today. so easy to be overwhelmed by what you see around you that you lose sight of the greater vision that you need to fix your eyes on that distant land. Having confessed that there were strangers and exiles on earth, Those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, had they been thinking of the country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. What's that country? Mount Zion. What's that country? The heavenly Jerusalem. What's that country? The city of the living God. What is that country? It is the new heavens and the new earth. That is what they were longing for. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a what? A city for them. That's remarkable, isn't it? Ever since Genesis chapter 4, the Bible presents the emergence of two people and two cities. There is what we can call the city of man and the city of God. While Cain's son Enoch built a city that bore his name. Hebrews is telling us that the patriarchs were looking and seeking for a city that bears God's name. God's city. And God's city does not reflect the glory of human industry. The architect and the builder of that city is God. And what was, or what has man-made cities produced for us? Let's contemplate that a little bit as we contrast the city of the living God with the city of man. Wouldn't you say our cities are reflective of the age that we live in? You know, in Beijing, the smog is so bad you have to walk around with a with a mask. You know, in the city of Chicago, the homicide rate is so high that no one knows how to fix the endless, senseless murder. We're talking about people taking a stroll down the street and getting hit by a stray bullet because of a drive-by shooting. Random, senseless, reckless violence. That's what fills our cities. More than that, it's curse upon curse when we really stop to think, if you have eyes to see, my dear brothers and sisters, our cities are not what the media wants you to believe, and it's certainly not, what the consumer-driven world that we live in wants you to believe. That our cities, you know, are just going to... We're just going to flourish in a new technological age where we're going to be carried about by drones and, you know, Amazon's going to knock at your door with a robot delivering your package and everything's just going to be hunky-dory. No, my dear friends, unfortunately... That is not the picture that we get. And that is not what's going on in our cities. Vegas is called Sin City. But in reality, every city is Sin City. Perversion, crime, idolatry, hedonism. I mean, my next door neighbor has a pagan god, Ganesh, in the middle of his lawn. Because he came from India... And he's importing Hinduism. And now I live next door to a pagan idol. I mean, our cities are full of idolatry. And if it's not a wooden stone idol, it's the idol of materialism. It's the idol of greed. It's the idol of career. It's the idol of the American dream. Hedonism, sin, disease. It's all in our cities so that our cities languish and strive under the futility of a life under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says. God's city, however, is quite different. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, and we'll be in Revelation here and there. Revelation 21 just gives us the contrast. It is a city that is full of His glory. It's a city devoid of the curse, Revelation 22.3. Look at Revelation 21 with me. It is a city devoid of suffering, devoid of the pain of disease. Wouldn't that be nice? It is a city where there will be no more crying, no more drive-by shootings, no more gang violence, no more Ebola outbreaks, no more b- bird flu or Zika, storms or violent weather. Well, based on last week's sermon, I'd be careful what I'm talking about, right? I know you had me in your minds, anyway. I did call it the prophetic word last week anyway, I see clear skies this week. <laughs> <laughs> Revelation chapter 21, verse eight. The most important thing of all, the city of God is its moral purity. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, which is the second death. Wow. Nothing abominable will enter into God's city. It will all be put out. You know... We've been following the political climate here in the last year or so. You saw that WikiLeaks is uh, is a group Assange or whatever his name is who leaks out different what seems to be more along the lines of classified or private information. He leaked out an email of Hillary Clinton's campaign manager Podesta, where in this letter. He articulates a desire to go to a satanic ritual. Huh? You're telling me that the, 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 the the, the campaign manager of one of the would-be presidents of the United States is writing in an email how he's looking forward to a satanic ritual party? We live in a wicked, evil, detestable world, brothers and sisters. Nothing abominable will be in God's city. A life spent toiling in the city of man will lead to despair, to disillusionment. It will lead you to to be grasping after the wind. I read an article on bloombergview.com that was chronicling the rise of the of death of uh, of um, of money traders. These are stockbrokers that are leaping out of buildings to their death because their financial dealings didn't go as planned, because the immense financial and fiscal pressure that their bosses put on them to maintain the wealth of someone else. This is what goes on in the city of man. You have people that pursue what will never satisfy them. And that is the opposite of what you find in God's city. Look at Revelation chapter 7. Now, Revelation chapter 7, I must tell you, it's an interesting chapter because it is a parallel to the new heavens and the new earth that you find in Revelation chapter 21. This is very problematic for premillennialists because in Revelation chapter 7, you have the coming of Christ and immediately following a reference to the new heavens and the new earth. Very interesting. Look at chapter, uh, I know now I I spun you all out in the controversy, eschatology. I'm just pointing out the obvious. In Revelation 7 verse 13, it says, Then one of the elders answered and said to me, These are, uh, these who are clothed in white robes are, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, which by that time is a cosmic uh, temple. It's a cosmic temple that expands as far as the universe and the new heavens and the earth will be, where God really is the temple. He who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Watch this now. In God's city, they will hunger no longer. They will not thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them. That's a that's a apocalyptic imagery of, ultimately, wisdom imagery of the futility of life. You ever feel like that week in, week out? Maybe you spend time in traffic. Coming from Southern California, let me tell you, we spend time in traffic. Even going back to the Shepherds Conference with MacArthur, sometimes I snap a picture of the traffic and I send that to my wife. I say, California hasn't changed. Look at where I'm at. The <laughs> 405 and you're sitting there for two hours. Nope. You will not be beat down by the futility of the sun nor any heat. For the Lamb is the center of the throne. And it says there will be there... He will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. The spring of the water of life just symbolizes that when we go to the city of God, we will encounter the all-satisfying experience of eternal life. We, it will be life upon life, refreshment upon refreshment. We will be replenished. We will never weary. We will never falter. We'll never be tired. We'll never be exhausted from work. We will never get a mind grain from looking at the computer for too long. You will never... You will never be uh, overcome by your cruel boss at work. You will never be agitated by co-workers. You will never have road rage. You will be eternally satisfied by the waters of life. And oh, we want to make our cities like this, don't we? You ever seen a city that they build, a new city, that's just chaotic and just a mess? Of course not. We try to make our cities paradisical. We put fountains and trees and flowers. We like nice architecture and we try to make our cities look beautiful and cobbled stone intersections to try to beautify our surrounding. Why? It's in us. We long for beauty. We long to be in paradise. We want to be in the garden. And that imagery has been completely radically twisted and perverted by this world. We can stay all day on this, but we can and we must go on. Like I told you, I don't want to be like Lloyd-Jones, but it's so exhausting. We'll come back to that. Let's look at the next thing. Not just, not just looking at the city uh, that we are going to or that we are gathered to, but next the angels that surround us. Now... We begin to look at the environment that we will be in. I want to point out several things here. Number one, notice the reference to the myriad of angels, as it says there in verse verse 22, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, and look at verse 23, to the general assembly. Now... Any good commentary on the book of Hebrews or any grammar or lexicon will tell you that the word would be here, it's translated general assembly in the NASB. Really, panugere is one word that means something like festival gathering. And so, the debate is, does this go with the angels or does this go with the, with, 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 with the church, the reference to the church? the church of the firstborn i think it goes with the angels along with most commentators and if that's so it means something like this uh, uh hendrickson william hendrickson translate it as as myriads of angels in joyful assembly something like that in festal gathering okay And i have only point that out to see that what we're going to get from this is a picture, an angelic picture that reminds us of our heavenly gathering, of our surroundings and what it teaches us. It teaches us three things. You ready? Number one, the myriad of angels teaches us about the absolute transcendent beauty of heaven. You see, here in our world, in our cities, we want pictures of angels. You go down to Mardell's and what do you see? Little angel figurines that they sell and pictures of angelic hosts around the throne and things like that. But think of it this way, dear folks. In heaven, there are no picture frames. There are no sculptures. There, there's no pictures of angels hanging around. We have the angels there. Think about that. And if that doesn't impress you... Think about what happened at the resurrection when, when an angel sh- decided to show up and it said he was so brilliant and so bright, the comparison was to the brightness of lightning. You ever looked at lightning? I've been caught in a storm where you're driving and the lightning is so bad, you get one that strikes close to you. You're like, whoa! Imagine an angel that's just emanating Light. To that power and that intensity and then understand that they are but a dim reflection of the, of the glory of the God whom they praise with unceasing worship. You see, what's happening in this text is that, is that the angels are providing for us an immersive experience where we are immersed in angelic praise. Daniel talks about this, Daniel chapter 7. Let me read it to you. Daniel 7 uh, verse 9 through 10 because it's very similar to what you find in Revelation. It is a throne room experience. It is uh, referring to the city of God. And it's the picture of the Ancient of Days on his throne. And he says, And I kept looking until the thrones were set up. And the Ancient of, uh, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow. And his hair was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. It's wheels. or so there's wheels on the throne. And they were burning with fire. Wow. Am- amazing imagery of a warrior god who is enthroned in fire and flame, He's, which is just the imagery of His holiness. And it says a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before Him. And then this is the reference to angels. Thousands upon thousands were attending to Him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before Him. The court sat down and the books were opened. Simply amazing. heaven is a place of transcendent beauty. But it's also this. The angels remind us that heaven is a place of absolute God-centeredness. So it reminds us of the absolute God-centeredness of heaven. That's what the angels remind us of, isn't it? That in heaven, the only glory that matters is God's. Think about that. Nothing will outshine the glory of God in heaven. Angels serve the singular purpose of bringing unceasing adoration to the triune God who will fill all things in heaven. God will no longer compete with church concerts or worship team rock stars for glory. Our proper place As His creatures will only be before His feet, bowed down, prostrate before Him. Our face to the earth, the new earth, in awe and in wonder. Our highest posture will be to have our hearts bowed down before Him in total absolute resignation so that we will sing along with the living creatures, Holy, Holy, Holy! It is absolute holiness. And that's the last thing. The angels remind us that heaven is a place of absolute holiness. It is a place where God's holy presence will be unrestrained. No longer veiled. Look at Isaiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, because what happens in Isaiah is that Isaiah sees a time where the glory of God will fill the whole realm with His glory. It will be undiminished, unrestrained, all all extensive glory, fully immersive in everything. Isaiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, it says, When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke and the brightness of an assemblies, of, excuse me, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. Think about that. What is that, what is that picturing for us? I'll tell you what it's in picturing. It's picturing for us Exodus language because we're talking about a cloud by day and fire by night. That's directly connected to Exodus and what happened at the Exodus as they wandered through and what happened at Exodus was simply typological. It was just a symbol of God dwelling in the midst of his people and providing divine protection. So what I, gather from this is that actually when we arrive at Mount Zion, the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no day, there will be no night. These are metaphorical statements to help us understand that in heaven there will be nothing to harm in all of God's holy hill. We will be perfectly protected. There will be a canopy over the whole realm of God's presence and his glory. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. Of course, heaven is not a place with violent storms. This is imagery to help us to understand that there is no threat in Zion. The angels merely echo the chorus that is being sung. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The angels also remind us that God's city is itself the holy city because it is characteristic of the holiness that flows from God's throne. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. I told you we'd be in Revelation. So Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. It says here, then I looked and I heard a voice and many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them were myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. That's the Bible's way of saying innumerable. It cannot be counted. I don't know what your, what your concept of heaven is like in your mind. But heaven, according to the Bible, is a place where we will be surrounded by an innumerable throng of people and angels and creatures, it will not just be a few people there. (laughs) It's not just going to be the Baptists. It's not just going to be the Calvinists. (laughs) I know some people might think that, but it's not. It's not just going to be the Charismatics. It's not just going to be the Cessationists. It's not just going to be the Dispensationalists. It may not be just the Covenantalists. But it's going to be the total Catholic Church. Universal in all of its scope. Those who possess genuine saving faith. The elect from all ages. From Genesis to Revelation. Myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, and we will sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing beyond the people. Everything that is created elicits praise even from the inanimate things, as it were. On heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The four living creatures kept saying amen. Wow. Isn't that great? The language of heaven. People are saying amen in heaven. I can't wait to go to heaven and go Amen. <laughs> and the elders fell down and worshipped. Speaking of elders brings us to our last point. Not just the city we're gathered to, not just the angels that surround us, but lastly, the church we belong to. The church that we belong to. This is the final component. The New Covenant ushers us into the redeemed people of God, referred to as the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, this is what I mean by stay with me now. Don't check out yet. You can check out when we start fellowshipping. <laughs> but not yet. Because we need to focus on a couple of things. There are some terms here that are very important for are hermeneutics, because the word assembly, ekklesia, the word firstborn, protadakon, and the word enrolled, and that's a really long Greek word, um, those terms are directly borrowed from the Old Testament text. Matter of fact, you find these equivalents in the Septuagint when you're looking when you're going from Hebrew to the Greek Bible. You see that this is the derivative. Is that he's you know uh, Acts chapter seven speaks of the 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 ecclesia that was in the wilderness. Well, that's the word that just means church. So there, Stephen is talking about the church in the wilderness. And and, and when, when he uses the word firstborn, this needs explanation. Because in Colossians chapter 1, Jesus Christ is called the firstborn. There's a slight difference. In Colossians, it's prototokos. Here in Hebrews, it's prototokon. One is singular, the other is plural. Therefore, in Hebrews here, chapter 12, when it says firstborn, it is not a reference to Jesus. It is a reference to all the saints. We are the firstborn ones, in a sense. We are the firstfruits. But what I want to show you is the Old Testament background of this. In Exodus chapter 4, we find this reference to Israel. Moses said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. I said to you, let let my son go, that they may serve me. For you have refused to let them go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. In Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah speaks in the same way. He says, thus says the Lord, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. And Luke, again, Luke, uh, excuse me, in Acts, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, He speaks of the ecclesia in the wilderness, as we've pointed out. And in the Gospels, the the church is that which belongs to the kingdom of God. So what we're saying is, basically, that when we come to the New Testament, what we're seeing is we're seeing terms and concepts that were once appropriately given to ethnic Israel, the Jewish people, exclusively. And now are being assigned to Christians to those that are in Christ therefore it is no surprise to find in first peter chapter 1 verses 9 through 10 the fact that the words that were reserved strictly for Israel as a nation is now are now applied directly to believers in Jesus Christ you don't have to be a Jew in order for that verse where Peter says, You are his holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, for those words to apply to you. It's not as if you read the Bible and you go, Uh his holy nation. Oh, he's right now he's talking about the Jewish people now. I have to wait or something. <laughs> no. Uh, the Bible works like this that Israel was typological of what the Bible would teach to be true Israel or spiritual Israel comprised of all of God's people who are in Christ. And that 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 language now becomes sort of universalized in the New Testament. It's really important for the way that you interpret Scripture. It signals the fulfillment of all of God's redemptive promises through Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying. Even the last term. Not just church. Not just firstborn, but also the word enrolled in heaven. Understand, where does the concept of enrollment come from? This is one of the verses that I use for church membership, right? And I, and if you've talked to me about that, you know that I often go to this verse and say, you know, this verse out of Hebrews chapter 12, uh, this verse actually moved me a little bit further down the, the path of church membership. Whereas before, I thought it was just kind of a, you know, I thought it was a good, Idea was, it was a, a way to organize the church. It makes sense. No, no, no. I was all wrong. Actually, I think it explicitly is implying church membership. And it comes from that. But before we get to church membership, understand that the background of this concept is found in Numbers as Moses is commanded by God to register all of Israel's firstborn. They are to be enrolled. They are to be enlisted. That's what's going on here. But what is that list of the covenant people of God being officially registered? What is that pointing us to? I would suggest that the fulfillment of that is fulfilled in what the New Testament calls the book of life. In Exodus 32, the same concept there is spoken about, but it's spoken about Moses. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 32:32 32, 32, in preparation for the New Testament use of the of, of the of the um, the book of life. He says Exodus 32:32. 32, 32, this is Moses interceding before God for the people of God. And he says forgive their sin if, and if not please blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Interesting. The New Testament picks up this imagery and applies it directly to those who will abide or who will not abide in Jesus Christ and hold fast to their confession to the end. So, for example, Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not not erase His name from the book of life. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See, all this reminds us that what happens on earth has eternal consequences. If we do not remain faithful here, We cannot expect to arrive safely in the new Jerusalem either. This is so important for our own personal endurance and perseverance. Because the Bible tells us, unless you persevere to the end, you will not be saved. And that's so in keeping with the book of Hebrews, right? Endurance, 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 endurance. It reminds us that our desire should be to strive to conform our lives to God's commands, knowing that God is preparing for us a heavenly abode in the city of God that is devoid of sin. It also reminds us that our worship is precious in God's sight. He cares about the purity of our worship because He surrounds Himself with innumerable angels who will never cease to proclaim His holiness. The city of God also reminds us that the heavenly Jerusalem is not built by human hands. There has never been and never will be the sound of human industry so that when we arrive in our heavenly gathering we will only serve to illustrate the glory of God not our own. We are Citizens, we are not builders. Paradoxically, heaven will be a place devoid of vain glory. Devoid of conceit and pride and selfishness. But get this, at the same time, heaven will be the place where the people of God will be utterly content, completely fulfilled, eternally satisfied. The blessings of the New Covenant, finally, brothers and sisters, are an invitation. And if you are not in the New Covenant, if you are not in Christ, if you are not saved, the New Covenant reminds us that this is an invitation to come. I'll end with this. Revelation 22.17 The Spirit and the Bride say, Come! And let the one who hears... Come, and let the one who is thirsty, come, let the one who wishes to take of the water of life without cost. The New Covenant reminds us that you will never be satisfied anywhere in this world. It is, as Augustine said, our hearts, O God, are restless until we find our rest in You. Nothing in this age, in this city, in this world will ever satisfy you. You can only be satisfied by the water of life that springs from the very throne room of God, from His very presence. Heaven, as Jonathan Edwards said, heaven is a world of love, but heaven is also a world of everlasting satisfaction. Father, we we pray now for the miracle that our eyes would be open, that we would see where are we finding our satisfaction today? Have we so cluttered our lives with empty wells, with things that can never satisfy us? That it's difficult for us to long for the water of life. And whatever that is, Lord, whatever empty cistern that we have dug out for ourselves, help us to see they're polluted. They're broken. They can hold no water. And help us, Lord, to see that the only thing that will satisfy us is a glimpse of you, The only thing that will satisfy us is Mount Zion, is the city of the living God, where we commune with Him. And Father, help us to remind and remind us, Lord, that that heavenly reality begins here and now. Even as our Lord Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so, Father, we pray that we would find our everlasting contentment exclusively in your presence and in communing with you and nothing else. To that end, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.